wanted to remind you guys of a couple things before we got started. One is all of Michelle's recipes are now available on the church website. If you hadn't got your newsletter yet, you'll be getting that soon, and uh, you can check those out anytime if you want any of those recipes. So that might be a fun thing for you to look at. And two, uh, we're going to have a Gideon speaker coming on February the 7th, Sunday, February the 7th. I enjoy the Gideons and the work they do. They put Bibles anywhere they can all over the world, and that's a, that's a good ministry and one that uh, we have supported for years and hopefully will continue to support. And so after the services on February the 7th, we will be taking up an offering and all of the monies, 100% of those monies that are taken up, all go to buy Bibles. The Gideons don't get paid. All the money that's used is to buy Bibles for people all around the world. So uh, if you want to give to that, be in prayer about it. But I just wanted to give you a heads up so it wouldn't catch you by the surprise. That will be uh, February the 7th, Sunday, February the 7th. All right, Mark chapter 10 is where we are this morning. Mark chapter 10, we've been in chapter 10 for quite a while. There's a lot of good stuff in Mark 10, and uh, we still at least got a couple of more weeks, three more weeks probably, uh, in chapter 10. But we're going to start in verse 32 today. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And we will read through verse 45, although we may not, probably will not, discuss verse 45 today, but we'll just see. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, we will read through all of the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. <clears throat> they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you, he asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning, and I thank you for these good words. And these are good words, God. These are good instructions for us. These are words that we need to listen to, that we need to soak in, and that we need to live by. So, God, I pray that as we study these words today, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would preach and teach through me, God, in all of my weaknesses and all of my failures. I pray that you would open my mouth and let me speak in a way that's understandable to your people that we would hear your word and that you would be glorified, and God, that we would grow in you this morning. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a good passage that we are looking at today. You may or may not remember that as we started this book of Mark, this study through the book, I entitled this study, uh, Call to Serve was the name of this study, because that's a theme that we have really seen in the last few chapters of the book of Mark. Uh, chapters 8, 9, and, and, and 10, 
we begin to see this theme unfold. And these words that I have read today, they sound familiar to you because uh, maybe you've read the scriptures a lot yourself, or maybe even if you just listen to them on Sundays, you've heard this theme, this idea of service kind of repeat itself. Jesus is pounding this idea, this servant attitude, this servant heart that he wants his 12 to have. He is really pounding that into them. And they go place to place. They do things. People approach him. He preaches to them. He teaches to them. And they're on their way again. In this instance, it says that they are going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is there. The 12 are there. And there are some others who are there because it said that uh, others were uh, with Jesus and they were, ast excuse me, they were astonished, but those who followed were afraid. Now, it's probably speaking of two different groups there. Those who followed Jesus who were astonished are probably the 12, and no doubt they would be astonished. Now, we don't know exactly what they were astonished at. It could be if this was uh, this trip took place right after the following, or excuse me, the previous events, maybe they were astonished at Jesus' teaching and his preaching uh, at the events before. Uh, maybe there was some other event that had occurred that Mark doesn't record for us. Uh, it, it, it's not hard for us to imagine, though, the apostles being astonished. They had seen Jesus do miraculous works for probably almost three years now. They had heard him preach and teach in a way unlike anybody else that had ever come. And so it's not hard for us to imagine that they were astonished. Maybe this astonishment was not over one particular act, but just everything that they had seen of Jesus. They probably were in astonishment every day. And so the 12 here is probably the ones who were astonished. And there were others who were afraid, the rest of the crowd. Jesus had lots of crowds that uh, would come around him, and in this case, crowds that were following him. And they were afraid. Maybe they were afraid at some of the teachings that Jesus uh, had previously taught that we looked at in the earlier part of Mark chapter 10. Because Jesus came with a pretty, with a pretty firm and stern response to some of these questions and issues that people would ask him, whether it was about divorce or whether it was about the possessions that they had and how they were supposed to live. Jesus told them some things that were really hard to accept, that were really hard to live by. Uh, he set a standard for them uh, that, that was much higher than the standard that the law had, had called them to. A lot of people of Jesus' day uh, were living by the letter of the law, but they, their heart wasn't right. And Jesus called them out on that on a few occasions in his ministry about getting their heart in the right place and telling them what God really calls them to, things that are hard for us. To, to follow a written law is easy, but to do things with a right heart is not always as easy because we can hide some of our evils. Uh, at least on the outside, we can avoid doing evils that people won't see, but, uh, and we can even hide the evils that are in our heart. But God knows our heart, and so do we. We know our heart, and we know that there are sometimes things in there that aren't to be there, and Jesus dealt with that and kind of called people out for their heart, and we need to uh, pay attention to the things that are in our heart. Maybe this is what made this group afraid. They were afraid at the teachings that Jesus do, and maybe they were afraid of his power. They had seen these miracles that he had done, raising people from the dead and, and healing people of diseases and casting out demons. Uh, they saw this unbelievable uh, amount of authority and power in which they had never seen before. Uh, maybe that was some of the fear that they had, but that's the good thing, right? Because Scripture says that Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so whatever this fear was, it obviously was a good fear because they were still following Jesus. It wasn't a fear that drove them away from Jesus, uh, but there was something there that Jesus did, even though they were afraid of him, they were following him. They were seeking him. And so the scene is set for us here. They are on their way up to Jerusalem. The apostles are with Jesus, and this other group is with Jesus, and there is astonishment and there is fear uh, as a result of, 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 of all the things that Jesus has done in this group that is with him. Now, verse 33. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Now, those couple of verses there 
are pretty clearly spelled out for us. Jesus laid out exactly what was going to happen to him. And we know, of course, that Jesus' uh, uh, prophetic words here came true exactly as he said. As we read through at Jesus' death and his resurrection, we see these very events unfold. Now, this was the fourth time that we've seen in the book of Mark that Jesus has, has begun to tell his disciples what is going to happen. Uh, we saw Jesus do it in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, we saw again Jesus do it in Mark chapter 9, verse 9, and again in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus has kind of given these details, but here in this account, he gives the greatest detail. It is undeniable what's going to happen. He spells it out for them literally and clearly what is about to take place to him. Now, whether the disciples fully understood and got that and comprehended that, it's hard to say. Because in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, it says that after he told them these things, they didn't understand. Now, maybe they had gained understanding since that time, and the time that had passed between Mark 9, 31 and to where he tells them this very uh, most detailed account of what's going to happen. Maybe he had given them some better understanding. Maybe God had opened their eyes that they could understand better. Maybe they still lacked understanding. Maybe they couldn't quite wrap their head around what was going to take place. Now, it's easy for us to wrap our head around what was going to take place because we know the story and how it played out. We know what happened to Jesus. And so when we say that, see that Jesus said these things, we don't really have a problem. We say, yep, it happened just like he said. But you have to think for the disciples who had been with Jesus for uh, probably about three years now, the things that they had saw him do, the fact that they realized that he was the Messiah, that they knew that his kingdom would one day come, that he would uh, be the one who, who, who would come and, uh, and, and, and deliver his people. They knew these things. They knew Jesus was the Messiah to come. And so it probably was a little harder for them to wrap their head around. They knew that Jesus had all of this power and authority. Uh, no demon could stand up to Jesus. No disease could stand up to Jesus. I mean, Jesus was doing miraculous things. So it, it may have been a little bit of a shock to them, and it may have been hard for them to comprehend. Well, how, what, how can Jesus die? We've seen his power. We know that he's the Messiah. How is the Messiah going to die? How can the Messiah, who's going to rule everything and is going to be over everything and going to start this new kingdom and is going to deliver his people, how could the Messiah die yet still accomplish all the prophecies that we've seen of the Messiah in the Old Testament writings? Now, that's probably why it was hard for them to understand. They may just simply could not have wrapped their head around the fact that these things would happen to Jesus. Now, maybe by this point they do understand because it doesn't say here that they do not. Maybe they are beginning to realize this is, after all, the fourth time. This is a pretty detailed account Jesus gives them. Maybe they are starting to understand, okay, this is going to take place. This is going to happen. So Jesus gives this, this most clear uh, prophecy here of about what will soon take place to him. Now, uh, something interesting happens. After hearing this, we get something that James and John say in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. So this is a, a, something we need to discuss for just a second because in Matthew's account of this story and Mark's account of this story, there is some difference. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, I believe, is where it's found, this this happens, this, this event is spelled out for us almost exactly. Uh, it, you can tell this is the same event that Matthew is writing about that Mark is writing about. It's unlikely that this is two separate events because this events, the events surrounding this passage in both accounts are very similar. It's almost certain that this is the same event that's being recorded by both Mark and Matthew. Now here in Mark's account, we have James and John who are wanting to ask Jesus this question. But in Matthew's account, we see that it's James and John's mother who wants to ask Jesus the question. 
Now, what are we to make of that? Now, some of the things that we see that there are slight differences, maybe miracles that occur or things that are said or parables that are spoken that are a little different, whatever it may be, we may say, well, Jesus may have spoken the same thing or it may have been an event that was similar, but it actually wasn't the same event. And that's why there are some differences in the story. But in this particular instance, I believe that it is the same event. It's hard for us when we look at the scripture to say that this may have been two different times, that maybe one time James and John's mother asked this question and, and later or earlier James and John asked this question. That doesn't seem to be likely. Uh, but we do have a difference here. Uh, so what are we to make of this difference? Well, there are a couple of ways maybe that we can take this difference. Uh, one is... Well, really, I guess there's, only, there, there's one way, I guess, that I'll present this morning that, that we can consider. Um, there were lots of people with Jesus here. There was a group and a crowd that was following Jesus. It's not unlikely that James and John's mother may have been part of this crowd. We see her mentioned later on in the Bible. Uh, it appears as though she probably was a close follower of Jesus. And so she could have been one of the ones in this crowd. It could have simply been that both of them asked Jesus this question. James and John's mother may have asked Jesus the question, and James and John also may have asked Jesus the question. In this whole event that took place, they may have both come. She came and said, look, Jesus, will you do this for my sons? And they said, look, Jesus, will you do this for me, what they're about to ask for? It could have been that they both asked Jesus this question. That seems to me to be the most likely. Uh, uh, that that the mother of James and John asked the question, and James and John themselves asked the question, and Matthew and Mark recorded different aspects of the story. We see this throughout the gospel accounts, where there are differences in these stories, where one person records one detail and another person records another detail. I believe it's very likely that that's what happened here, that probably both of these events occurred, that James and John's mom asked Jesus the question and that James and John themselves asked Jesus the question. It's also possible uh, that, 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 that Mark just left out that detail because there was no need to repeat the same question twice. If they both ask, then there was no need to say, James and John's mother asked this question. James and John, in turn, asked this question. There is a difference there. You can study that on your own if that's a, 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 something that you are curious about. Uh, but it's not uncommon for us to see different gospel writers focus on different details of the story. I bring that out simply because it's a difference, and if you study this on your own, you may see that that's a difference, and it may make you think, wait a minute, is this the same event? What's going on here? So there is a difference there, and you can study that uh, if you would like to sometime. But that's not the real focus of what we want to talk about today, because the real focus is not who asked the question, or if they both asked the question, or at what point in time they asked the question, or even if this was asked at different points in time. Uh, the real thing that we're looking at today that's important in this passage is the question that they asked. The question that was asked, as we will see here in just a second, is as follows. In verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? He said to them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Now, this is a pretty, pretty big question right here. This shows, obviously, that the apostles recognized that, that Jesus was going to be victorious, that he was going to the, be the Messiah, that his kingdom would come. That's what Matthew's language says. It says, uh, let us sit on your right and your, and your left in your kingdom. Now, they recognized that Jesus was the king and his kingdom would be established. So at least they understood that to some, some degree. Uh, we talked earlier that they may not have completely understood what Jesus said, but they did understand that he would be the king, and they did understand that his kingdom would one day come, or else they wouldn't be asking the question, can we sit on your right or left when your kingdom comes? Now, when we see this language of, of sitting at the right hand in Scripture, it's a, it's a position of honor. It's a position that shows, that shows power. Uh, and we see this, this right hand mentioned quite often in Scripture. When we speak of an earthly king even, the person who is sitting at the right hand of the king is someone who has power, who has authority. You may remember in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, 
when he became second in command in Egypt. What did he have? He had full power and full authority. Pharaoh said, look, I'm putting you as second in command. He was his right-hand man, so to speak, or at the right hand of the Pharaoh. And being at the right hand of the king, at the Pharaoh, means that you have full authority and full uh, power. Uh, it is a place of honor. And when people see that there is someone at the right hand of the king, then that is, then they know that. They know that that person is the king's right-hand man. Now, we see that, that, that type of language and that idea in a worldly sense, but we also see it spoken of Jesus quite regularly in the New Testament. Very frequently it says that when Jesus finished his work on the cross, he is seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because Jesus has full power and full authority. And so when we see that language, seated at the right hand of God, that's what it's speaking of when we, when we, when we speak of Jesus. Now we have this language in Scripture often. That, that explains things in, in human terms that we can understand. Now, we see and, and use language that God is on the throne. Is God sitting on a, on a real physical throne in heaven? Possibly so. He may be. But that also may just be symbolic language to let us know that God is in control. That's when we use that language, right? When we have hard times and bad things that are going on in our life, we may use that as an encouraging word to say, but God is still on the throne. Well, what, what do we mean when we say that? We mean God is in control. Now, it may be that God is on a physical throne. I really don't know. It may be that Jesus is actually sitting at the right hand of God right now. That could literally be the case. Or it could simply be symbolic language, that God is in control, that God is all-powerful, that God is on the throne. And Jesus, by his death and resurrection, seated at the right hand of God, also has that same power, that authority, because the work of the cross. And that's the kind of language I believe is being used here. I believe as this passage unfolds for us, Jesus is, is, is speaking in terms that maybe we are to take symbolically and not so much literally. Now, I think when James and John asked this question, I think they were thinking in a, in a physical, literal term, that when Jesus established his kingdom, that they really wanted to be seated at the left and the right hand of God. They wanted to be in those positions of power and authority. They wanted to be right there beside Jesus. Now, this is a pretty bold thing for them to ask. Let's read a little further and see what Jesus said in verse 38. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, Jesus begins to kind of shift gears on them here with their question. Now, I believe that they were probably asking this question in a purely physical sense, that they thought they were going to be able to sit in real thrones to the right and to the left of Jesus. But Jesus begins to correct them, and he begins to use this as an opportunity to preach to them something that's super important for you and I. He says, look, you don't know what you're asking. And then he uses some symbolic language that's kind of weird. If we were just to read this verse by itself, we may not be able to understand what Jesus is saying. But when we look at the whole context of Scripture and what Jesus says, we are, are able to understand this. He said, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Well, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's speaking about his death and his resurrection, the suffering that he is about to go through. And he uses this language that seems kind of odd to us, but it's really not odd in Scripture. And it's symbolic in Scripture. And we even see Jesus using this symbolic language. Uh, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, as Jesus is in the garden before he is crucified, he prays. And it says, in his prayer, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So the cup that Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 10 is no doubt the same cup that he's speaking about in Matthew chapter 26. What is that cup? Well, that cup is the suffering that's about to take place. It's his crucifixion that is about to take place. 
as God's plan unfolds and Jesus is about to give his life as a ransom for many, this is heavy on Jesus' heart. In the verse before this one, I believe, it speaks that Jesus is in great sorrow. He is grieving. In that passage, it talks that he is, his sweat is like drops of blood. This is a, this is a, a powerful thing that's about to happen to Jesus. Jesus knows what lies before him. And he says, look, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what is this cup? This cup is the suffering uh, and sacrifice that he is about to, about to give uh, on the cross. Now, when Jesus says cup here in Mark 10, he's speaking of the same thing. This cup, he's, he's using it in terms, I believe, of his suffering. And he asked them, are you able to drink this cup? That is, are you able to go through what I'm about to go through? Are you able to faithfully follow me and serve me? Because that's what service to me is going to look like. And he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, uh, I don't believe he's speaking of a physical baptism. Now, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist early on in his ministry, but I don't think that's the baptism that Jesus is speaking of here. I believe he's, again, using this symbolic language, and we see this same thing in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Jesus says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and it now consumes me until it is finished. Now, there's good evidence that Jesus is not speaking about his earthly baptism. That's something that already occurred when Jesus spoke these words in Luke chapter 12. He's speaking of a baptism that is yet to come, that consumes him uh, until it is finished. Well, what is this baptism that he's going to finish? It is his death and resurrection. And so we see Jesus use this language of the cup and of the baptism and other points in his ministry. And here he uses these two together. And when James and John asked, can we sit beside you on the throne? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Look, let me ask you a question. Are you ready for the cup and the baptism? And that is, I believe Jesus was saying, are you ready for the suffering that comes with true service? Now, he uses symbolic language here with this cup and with this baptism. We see a cup used even in the Old Testament too. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter um, 25, I believe it is, Jesus, or excuse me, uh, Jeremiah speaking about the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out on the enemies of God, on the evil nations. And we see similar language used in Revelation. And so this language of a cup or this language of baptism is, is very symbolic language. And it's symbolic here for us in Mark chapter 10. And the symbolism that Jesus is trying to get across to James and John, as well as you and I, is that to be his follower, to want to be those who sit at his right or his left, will require suffering and service for the kingdom. Let's read a little further. They answer in verse 39, We are able, they told him. Now, I don't know if James and John fully understood what he said. Maybe they understood fully what he said. Uh, maybe they didn't understand. Maybe they're saying, oh yeah, whatever, Jesus, whatever it takes. Yeah, we're able to do it. Whatever you're talking about, the cup, the baptism, we are able to do it. Maybe they didn't understand or maybe they completely understood what Jesus said. But if they didn't understand, Jesus uh, uh, affirms to them, yes, you will uh, uh, partake of the cup in the baptism that I uh, partake of. And the next verse, or following uh, on in 39, I should say, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now, I believe that Jesus is speaking of suffering here for the kingdom when he uses cup and baptism. And Jesus affirms to James and John, you indeed will drink the cup. You indeed will go through the same baptism as me. And I think Jesus says, you will suffer for the kingdom of God. And they did. We see that as we read through the rest of the New Testament after Jesus' death and resurrection, that there was much suffering for those early Christians, those followers of Jesus. Uh, there were many who were put to death. And guess what? Things have not changed 2,000 years later. There is still great suffering among Christians all around the world. And we may be a little blind to that because we kind of are in our safe little bubble in Mississippi. Praise the Lord that God is good to us. 
But we need not ever forget that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in mighty ways for the kingdom of God, knowing full well, oftentimes, what they are getting into, they say, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth. God, I'm going to go to the places where it's difficult. I'm going to go to places where war is rampant, where disease is rampant, where my very life is in danger every day, where I may not have water to drink or food to eat. But God, I am going to go. What I believe people like that say, and you and I hopefully, is yes, Lord, we are able to drink the cup. We are able to be baptized with the baptism. Lord, we are able and we are willing to suffer for your kingdom. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's what Jesus, I think, was calling James and John to here. And Jesus said, yes, indeed, you will drink from the cup and be baptized with the baptism. He's, he's letting them know, look, it's going to be tough for you too. It's tough for me. Jesus had just told them how tough it was going to be for him. And I believe he's telling them it's going to be tough for you. If they did what they were going to do to the shepherd, then what would they do to the sheep? Well, they would do the same thing. If people were to persecute and eventually take the life, uh, crucify, I won't say take the life, uh, they crucified Jesus, he gave his life. But if they did that to the Messiah, then what will they do to the Messiah's followers? Well, they will do the same. Verse 40. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. Now, we could look at this verse, and we, we may would look at this and say, well, Jesus affirms that there really will be somebody sitting at his right or left, but it's not for him to say who that's going to be. Uh, Jesus could be affirming that and saying it's not mine to give that position out to uh, where they're going to sit. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. We could take that as Jesus saying that there are indeed two seats that have been prepared for two people throughout all the history of the world, and they will literally sit at the right and left of Jesus. That could be what Jesus is saying here. But I believe that he is speaking symbolically here. I don't believe that Jesus is necessarily saying that there will only be two, although there may be. But I believe that when he speaks of those who are at his right or left and those who it is prepared for, I don't think that that is limited to two people. I think that the positions to the right or left are prepared for all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because to sit at the right hand is a symbolic language. It's language that speaks of honor. It's language that speaks of power and authority. The very power and authority that you and I have when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are, we are given victory over sin and death and all of the things of the world, over Satan, over the demons, not by what we have done, but what Jesus Christ has done. And when we accept Jesus Christ and when we follow Jesus Christ, we have power and authority through Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ. And I believe the language that Jesus is using and that this whole passage is about is about all those who will come to Christ. They will be at the right and left hand side of God. It's not a, it's not a, a physical position to sit there, but it's a position that we can all, uh, we can all experience if we follow Jesus Christ. And so the other disciples responded after hearing what Jesus said in verse 41. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now that's an interesting verse there, and I wonder why they were angry. They were angry with James and John. I wonder why they were angry. Perhaps they were angry because they knew that was an inappropriate question to ask. How dare you guys ask that question? You shouldn't be asking that question. That's not the right thing to be, say, uh, to be saying to Jesus. Maybe that's why they were angry. Maybe they were angry because they didn't think of it themselves. Maybe they were thinking, dang it. Now here they don't ask. It's like when you get ready to go somewhere, especially as a kid. You call shotgun if you want to ride in the front seat. And whoever calls shotgun, they get to ride in the front seat. And it's amazing how much we go by that unwritten rule. That when somebody calls, it's like, man, I, I forgot to call. I should have called it first. I don't get to ride in the front seat. Maybe that's why they were angry. Maybe they were thinking, golly, there's only one seat to the right and to the left, and they've already claimed it first. They spoke up for it, and now they're going to get it. 
I don't know why the apostles were angry. Those are a couple of suggestions. But regardless of why they were angry, they were angry at, the, at James and John for asking the question that they asked. Now, let's get into, into the good part of this passage. This is a great few verses that we're about to look at in the next minute or two. Now, if, if, this, if this passage of Scripture that we're looking at here in Mark chapter 10, if this passage were a cow, this would be the filet mignon. This would be the, this would be the prime cut of this passage, in my opinion. This is good stuff for us to consider, and this is what we need to listen to, and we need to hear what Jesus is speaking to his apostles here because it is just as relevant for you and I. In verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. Now, Jesus kind of shifts gears in what's going on here. Now, it's, it, it's possible that what James and John wanted when they asked Jesus this question is they were seeking positions of power. They wanted to be those who were in those positions of power. It's possible that's what they were asking, and maybe that's why Jesus responds in this way, because he shifts gears, and he begins to talk about the Gentiles and the Gentile leaders. And he says, look, the Gentile leaders, those who have power among the Gentiles, they dominate their people. They are, they are abusive to their people. They don't look out for their people. They exercise their power for their own good, not for the good of the people. Now, this seems like an odd thing for Jesus to begin to talk about here in this passage, but he's leading up to, a, to, a, to make an illustration here. Now, perhaps that's why Jesus uses this language is because he knew the heart of James and John. Maybe they were simply seeking positions of power, as as human beings we often do. Uh, we need to be careful, though, when it comes to power because power will corrupt people and absolute power will corrupt people absolutely. And if, and if we find in our heart that we are men and women who are seeking power, then we must examine ourselves and we must be very careful. Why are we seeking power? What do we want to use that power for? Well, typically people who are seeking power are seeking power for themselves because they want to be in control. They want to be in charge. They want to be over everyone else. They want to say everything I say goes. You do what I tell you to do. Those who are in power usually have money. They usually have privilege. There are lots of things that come with power. They like to be able to tell others what to do and be in control. And oftentimes when people want power, that is what they want. And so we must be careful if we ever find ourselves desiring power because power will corrupt you. And I think we can probably find plenty of evidence of that through history of good people who got in positions of power and went downhill fast. Now we can see that all around us, maybe on a small scale, maybe uh, when it comes to politics or maybe when it comes to other leaders of companies or other people in the world. Oftentimes you see people who get power and they get corrupted. They love the power. They love the money. They love the fame. They love control. And once we get to that point, if we get to that point, we will do anything we can to keep power. And that's not the kind of power that Jesus wants us to have. That's a very worldly power. And that's why Jesus says here, look, let me tell you how the Gentiles live. The rulers of the Gentile, those of the Gentiles who have power, they use it to dominate their people. They use it for their own interest. People who want power usually want it for their own interest. They want power that is selfish, that doesn't look out for the needs of others, but looks out for the needs of themselves. And Jesus says, this is what the worldly people are like. I think this is the example he's making. When we see Gentiles in the scripture, he simply means people who are not of Israel. Israel was God's people, and the Gentiles were not God's people. They weren't God's chosen people. It's not that Gentiles could not come to the Lord and seek the Lord and be his. They very well could from the Old Testament to this point. But here I think Jesus is making an illustration between the righteous, the godly, and the unrighteous, the ungodly, uh, those who are in Christ, 
and those who are of the world. And Jesus is saying when he says Gentiles here, people of the world seek power for their own benefit to dominate other people and to be over other people and to abuse other people and to make themselves look good, to make themselves feel good, to have themselves provided for. That's a very worldly sense of power. But, Jesus says in the next verse, verse 43, but it must not be like that among you. Now, I believe that this is a good, a, 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 a good indication maybe that that's what James and John were seeking. They were seeking that type of power. Maybe in their heart they had this desire to be over other people, and that's why they wanted to sit at the right or to the left. That may not have been what they were thinking. I don't know. But that is definitely a possibility among us. That is the temptation that we may be tempted by that power. And Jesus said worldly power only looks out for oneself when they have worldly power. Worldly power doesn't care about other people. But Jesus said it must not be like that among you. Well, who's the you he's talking about? He's talking about his followers. Those who are godly, those who are followers of Jesus Christ must not live like the rest of the world. That is, you must not seek power to, to, to hold over other people only for your good. But Jesus says it must not be like that among you. He goes on to say in that verse, in verse 43, On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. Now he says, look, the world looks at power and greatness in this way. Those in the world who want to be great, those in the world who want to have power, it's for their own good. But it must not be like that among you, follower of Jesus Christ. Instead, those who want to, to, to live in the Lord's power, it is a power to serve. Not a power to be over other people, but a power to serve other people. Those of us who are in Christ, we shouldn't be looking for ways that we can control people, but we should be looking for ways that we can serve people. We shouldn't be looking for ways and things, how is this going to benefit me, but how can this benefit someone else? Not how is this going to help me, but how can I help someone else? Jesus said the world seeks power, the world seeks greatness for his own good, but it must not be like that among you. Jesus said, if you want power, if you want greatness, then serve other people. Now, that's what power is. Jesus wants to give us the power to serve. And that power, really, I believe, can only come from Jesus because our natural human inclination is not to serve other people. Because if we're honest, to serve other people is not always fun. It's not always easy because oftentimes service comes with a sacrifice. Service comes with us having to sacrifice something of ourselves. We have to sacrifice our comfort. We have to sacrifice our safety. We have to sacrifice our finances. We have to sacrifice our time. These are all things that Jesus calls us to do in service of him. And Jesus says... Whoever wants to be great, this is how you become great. Greatness is measured not by the people that you control, but by the people that you serve. Now, ain't that something? The world won't tell you that. The world will tell you you need to promote yourself, and you need to get in a higher position of power, and you need to go from preaching at a smaller church and a bigger church, and then you will be great if your church is big, and then you'll be great if you're the CEO of the company, and then you'll be great if you're a millionaire, and then you'll be great if you're famous, and then you'll be great if you're on TV, and then you'll be great because in our world, greatness is measured by your position and your power and your authority. But the world is blind to what power and authority is. The world thinks power and authority is wealth and fame and position. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says it should not be like that for you, follower of Jesus Christ. 
That's what the world says, but it must not be like that among you. Jesus said true greatness comes in how you serve. That's a natural human inclination for us to say we want to be great. And I will say that there's nothing wrong with greatness or power. I'm not saying that every person in the world that has power is evil. There are lots of good Christian men and women who are in positions of power. But the question we must ask is, are we seeking power or are we seeking Jesus Christ? Because if we're seeking power, we're probably going to get corruption. But if we're seeking Jesus Christ, power may follow. It may. Not always. There are plenty of Christians that follow Jesus Christ and they are suffering in great ways and they ain't got nothing. They don't know if they're going to be able to eat today. They don't know if the people they're ministering to are going to listen to them or are going to kill them. There are other Christians who are faithful service, servants of God and they seek Jesus first and sometimes God puts Christian men and women into positions of power. And they are well known. They may be famous in some way. And that greatness is not, not evil. But we must be careful to realize do we want power for ourselves or do we want it for the kingdom of God? All we are to do is to seek the kingdom of God, to seek Jesus Christ, to seek to serve other people. And Jesus says that is greatness. People may look at you and they may say, well, he ain't got much, he ain't got much. What do they do? They don't have a good job, they don't have a lot of money. They ain't got no position of power. They're not very great. The world may look at us and tell us we're not great, but it doesn't matter what the world looks, of us, looks at us and says. It matters what God sees when he looks at us. And God sees greatness in our heart to serve. And that's what Jesus is calling his apostles to here. That's what he's calling you and I to here. He's saying, don't be like the world. The world lives one way, but it must not be like that among you. Jesus says, it's not about power. If that's what James and John were asking about, it's not about that kind of power. Jesus says, here's what you need to be focused on. Not if you're going to be sitting on my left or right in the kingdom of God, but what you need to be focusing on is that you're going to have to suffer if you want to follow me. Are you ready to do that? It's a good question for us to answer. Are we ready to do that? Are we ready to suffer for the kingdom of God? Are we ready to look past our own greatness and say, God, I might have to sacrifice my career, my money, my safety, my security, but God, I'm going to sacrifice that for the service of other people. That's tough. But the same questions that Jesus is asking his apostles are the same questions that I believe he wants us to answer today. He says, look, don't worry about where you're going to sit. Worry about serving me. Worry about serving other people. Worry about... Loving other people. In verse 44 he said, And whoever wants to be the first among you must be a slave to all. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 45, and we'll save that for next week, but Jesus goes on to speak of his own example. As he calls his apostles to service, he says, Look at the service I'm giving. Look at how I live. Look at what I'm calling you to do. Now, this is a good passage here. I love this passage that we looked at today. And it's a lot for us to consider, and we need to recognize what Jesus is saying. Jesus has said this throughout the following few verses. Maybe that's why the people were afraid. Maybe that's why they were astonished, because of the things that Jesus called them to were difficult, because... Living for the world, boy, it, it pulls us away from God. We desire a lot of things that are ungodly. But Jesus calls us to do away with a lot of worldly things so that we can follow him fully. And he is trying to prepare his apostles for what is to come. He is telling them, look, if you want to follow me, it's not going to be easy. If you want to follow me, know what it means to be a follower of me. Know what it means to be great. And it means to be a servant of all. They were asking for power, and Jesus was going to give them power, maybe not the power they expected. Jesus was giving them the power to serve. And that's what he calls us to, and he will give us the same power if we are obedient to him. If we say, God, whatever you call me to, no matter how difficult it is, God, I'm willing to serve, I'm willing to suffer for you, and God, I'll do whatever it takes. 
And that may be difficult because some of the ways that God may call us to serve are not going to be easy. It may require us to get out of our comfort zone. But we can do it. We can do it with the power of God. And don't think just because there's something that, that an opportunity to serve and you say, golly, I don't want to do that. That's gross. That's nasty. That's hard. Well, that, that, that inclination may come into your mind. But say, God, I, my heart's not right. I know I should want to do this. I know this is what you're calling me to, and I don't, I'm, not really, I'm not really excited about it, but God, help me to do it anyway. Because we may not always be excited about some of the ways that God calls us to serve. But we do need to remember these words of Jesus, that if we want to be first of all, if we want to know what greatness really is, we must first be a servant to all and let God help us be obedient to that call. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these good words today, and I pray that we would learn from what Jesus said. God, I pray that we would recognize that there is suffering associated with following you sometimes. Dear Lord, that's not always the case. Well, I guess, God, it is always the case. There is, God, times that when we serve you, that it's just hard to take a stand for you. And sometimes we suffer greater than others, but God, there's always suffering that comes. If we're living for you, we can rest assured that there's going to be some suffering in our life. And so God, I pray that we would just stand firm, that we would be ready for that, that we would say, yes, Lord, we are ready to follow you through whatever uh, we have to go through, that we would, we would just remain obedient to you, dear Lord. And I pray that you would help us to not be worldly, not seek power and position, but God, that we would seek greatness in another way, through Jesus Christ that we would seek greatness through service, God. And God, I just pray that you just bless the reading of these words today. I pray that your words would stay tucked away in people's hearts. And I pray that they would be a light for us, an encouragement to us, and help us as we go into the world, God, that we would be faithful to, to, to share the love of Jesus Christ so that people can enter into your kingdom. And God, I pray that if there is one here today that has never followed Jesus Christ, that they would do so. Maybe today they realize, man, it's a, it's a huge cost to, call her, to follow Jesus, but it's a cost that's worth it because he paid such a great cost for my salvation. God, maybe there are some here today and they recognize they need to follow Jesus. Maybe their heart's not right. I pray that they would do so, that they would submit themselves to him. And God, I pray that you would help us to be filled with a heart to serve and help us in the hard days. God, that's an easy prayer to pray, but we got to be ready because, God, you may give us those opportunities and they may not be easy. So help us to do our best to serve you, even on the tough days, even in the tough things. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's service. To learn more about Jesus, call or text Pastor Shan at 601-657-0180 or email him at shanvn at me.com. You can also visit us at www.enterprisebaptist.church or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ebcliberty. We hope that you have been blessed by today's service.